So I want to ask you to turn to your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verses 12 and go all the way through verse 17. And as you are turning in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 verse 12, there's something I, uh, there's someone I would like to highlight, um, not because it's about any one person this morning, but um, I think it's appropriate because the Scriptures tell us when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, heaven rejoices. Heaven, the glories of heaven, God, angelic beings, all the other creatures you see in Revelation, which we don't understand right now, is rejoicing when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And guess what? I want to introduce to you a new sister in Christ. Catherine, could you just stand up right now? This is Catherine. This week, Catherine said, I want to follow Jesus. And she received the forgiveness of her sins. And now she's a sister in Christ. And so we get to celebrate that. And it's not, as I said, to put the spotlight on any one person. I just want you to get to know her. And I think she wants to get to know you. And so we're a family here. We're a church family. We're a body of Christ. And so it's important that we're aware of one another. So Catherine, welcome to the family. We're so grateful that you're a part of this family and ultimately the family of God. And so we can't wait to see you blossom in this newfound relationship. Yeah. By now, you should be turned to 1 John chapter 2. And if not, it's just a subtle reminder. 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And as I said, I'm going to read all the way through verse 17. John writes this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Heavenly Father, Right now that we we ask that you would help us to continue to worship you through the listening of your word. We ask for your help to listen intently because even as Peter acknowledged, you have the words of eternal life and our greatest need is to hear from you. And so right now, Father, we ask that that you would enable us that you would equip us, that we would have ears to hear and a heart that is resolved to follow through 
with what you tell us. Give us understanding. Give us clarity of thought. And help us to see you as more great and awesome than we did when we walked in here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Catholic tradition, uh, certain requirements must be true of a person in order to be recognized as what we call a, a saint. Uh, actually, ch- Catholic tradition uh, acknowledges that everyone who is, is now perfected in, uh, from purgatory and is now in heaven is considered to be a saint. But there are people that are recognized in this life as saints, meaning that they either get to skip purgatory or spend very little time in purgatory, and they go straight to heaven. Now, I just want to qualify. I am not here to give you Catholic Theology 101. I'm not here endorsing purgatory. I don't believe that to be a biblical theology. However, I think you'll see where I'm going with this in just a moment. The Catholic tradition says that in order for someone to become a saint or to be recognized as a saint, four phases or four requirements must be met. The first requirement is this. You must be recognized as a servant of God. Now, that sounds pretty vague or general, but actually, to be recognized as a servant of God, that person must have been, had, had been dead for five years at least, and therefore, there could have been a, a kind of a thorough investigation uh, to make sure that this person was, in fact, a servant of God. And so, in other words, you could not be recognized until after you were long gone. And if that recognition was, uh, took place, then that person could be moved up to requirement number two or phase number two, and that, that, that is that he must be voted as venerable, which is a fancy term that means they must have lived a heroic life or done something heroic. Now, of course, to be considered heroic or lived a heroic life a thorough investigation would ensue about one's life and maybe the writings that they were known for and the witnesses that knew him firsthand. And again, if, they, if all those things checked out, then guess what? They would be considered, this is a heroic person, not just a servant of God, but they are heroic. They have a, they're a unique person. They stand out among the crowds. But then you get, have to go to requirement number three, and that is a person must become blessed by the Pope. Now, in order to be blessed by the Pope, you had to have performed a miracle that was verified by the Pope, and of course, the miracle had to be proven that there was no natural explanation for it. And that would bring you to requirement number four, the final requirement, and that is a person will become a saint, not just blessed, but a saint by performing another miracle, again, under the same rigorous process as before, and had to be affirmed by the Pope. If all four of those requirements were met, then a person was considered, at least from our perspective, a saint. The Bible, however, teaches a different pathway to sainthood. The Bible teaches... That sainthood is bestowed on all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. 
Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are considered saints of God. Listen to how Paul makes reference to multiple, and in multiple letters, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are alive at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Or in Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and the deacons. In other words, sainthood, according to Scripture, doesn't begin when we enter into the presence of heaven. It begins when we make a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. At that moment, you become a saint. The moment you repent of your sin and receive the forgiveness of your sin and are declared righteous and holy and innocent before God the Father, it's at that moment you become a saint, a son, a daughter of our Father in heaven. It's why I was able to say to Catherine on Tuesday, you are now a sister. You are now a child of the King. Not based on my authority, but based on what Scripture teaches, the authority of Scripture and the authority of God's promises to us. Now, I don't know, perhaps you might be wondering to yourself, Aaron, why in the world are we even talking about this? It's not even mentioned in our text. Why in the world are we talking about things that does, isn't even clearly stated in our passage here this morning? Why talk about sainthood or even mention it? And I, believe, and I think that the way I'm going to answer that question that you didn't have in your mind but now do is this way. I say it or I mention it because knowing who you are as God sees you, or better, remembering who you are in Christ is of vital importance. It's of foundational importance to our apprenticeship to Jesus. You see, there's more commands in Scripture to remember than there are to obey. Isn't that crazy? There are more commands in Scripture to remember than there are to obey. And you might ask, why in the world is that? Because our obedience to Jesus, our apprenticeship under Jesus, is contingent on knowing who we are in Christ. But if we forget who we are, which, by the way, we are way more susceptible than we like to realize. If we forget who we are, then we begin to lose our way. We, we, we forget God's agape for us, right? We begin to adopt the values of this world rather than the values of God. We buy into the lie that the values of the world will give me something that God cannot or will not give to me. And so we see that what John is seeking to do in our passage here this morning, at this point in his letter, he's really helping Christians, followers of Jesus, who are at different stages of their spiritual maturity, to, to remember who they are in Christ. He's helping them to remember what is true of them so that they will not fall victim to the, the empty and, and lifeless and the counterfeit ideologies that the world gives hearty approval to. And so while the first part of our passage, where he references children and fathers and young men, seems somewhat disconnected from the second part, 
Do you not love the world? I think you'll see very shortly that they're actually complementary sections. They're actually a package deal. And the reason is because our identity in Christ must precede our obedience to Christ. Because obedience is born out of identity. And so the way we're going to do this is we're going to go through this in two points. We're going to unpack this passage in two points. The first point is this. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. And the second one is recognize what the world offers but cannot give. Recognize what the world offers but cannot give. So this question that we are going to answer is, who are you in Christ? Who are you as God says you are? Sorry, I'm using a little different clicker point this morning. The first point is this. What we see, let me just back up a second. John really kind of, as you kind of noticed in our text here this morning, he kind of gives this poetic prose, right? He kind of he describes, and, and maybe you're not a, a poet, and yes, we know it. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but... The point is he gives us like this poetic prose to kind of help us understand different aspects of our spiritual maturity, right? And, and, and he actually, actually talks about it. He's like, it's not just that we are under, understand our identity in Christ. He's actually helping us understand what we've already received in Christ because what we've received in Christ ultimately tells us who we are in Christ. So what have we received in Christ? Well, the first thing that we have received in Christ is that we have been forgiven of our sin. You, this morning, if you are a child of the king, let me just remind you of something you already know but need to hear all the time. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. I am writing to you, little children, verse 12 says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice that why Jesus forgives your sins, why God forgives your sins. It's for his name's sake. He's making much of himself. He's like, look how incredibly glorious and great I am by my willingness to forgive and pardon you of all your sin. Not just some of your sins. Not just the really bad things or the sort of bad things. All your sins. Everything that once separated you from God has been removed. There are no more barriers standing between you and God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf. You are forgiven. I think it's important to at least highlight for just a brief moment as to why John probably launches out in this way. Why does he talk about our identity, and and the first thing out of his lips are, you are forgiven. I think the reason why he, he, he hones in on forgiveness first is because forgiveness is fundamental to discipleship to Jesus. You recall that the very first thing that Jesus preaches on in the first sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, right? He says, blessed are the brokenhearted, rest are the poor in spirit. It's a reference to people who recognize the sinfulness of their sin, They recognize that they are estranged or separated from God. He says, this is the one who inherits eternal life. This is the one who finds favor in the sight of God. 
It's really a summation of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4 when, he, when Jesus went around preaching repentance and healing the sick. The point is, salvation begins when you repent and receive God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. At that point, you are not only forgiven, you are also reconciled, and you are considered a saint, a child of the king, a son and daughter in God's family. And so John is helping these young believers, these children in the faith, to remember, remember? God has pardoned you. He's forgiven you. As far as the east is from the west, so he remembers your sins no more. They are removed. You stand innocent and clean and guiltless before God Almighty. It's important that young and new believers understand that. But guess what? It's just as equally important that those who have walked with Jesus for 70, 80 years also come to that point of reference. This fundamental truth of forgiveness is actually uh, quite true of someone who has walked with Jesus for their entire life. The longer that someone has walked with Jesus, and really what we might say, therefore, the, the more spiritually mature someone has become, there's a kind of a correlation that as I walk with Jesus, the more aware I am of my sin and the sinfulness of my sin and the more grateful I am of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness in my life. In fact, in, I would say in somewhat seemingly ironic fashion, the more spiritual a person is, the more they see their, they see their need to confess their sin because the more aware they are of their sin, that exist in their heart. Tyler Statton, who is the pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, writes in a recent book, one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, As I ascend in my relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. He goes on to say, but true spirituality, though, is the opposite. Spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. The longer someone has walked with Jesus, The more they are in tune with what's really in their heart, the more they recognize their need for God's grace and the more they rest in God's grace. Oftentimes, the younger we are, the more full of ourselves we are, the better we think about ourselves. And then you talk to someone who's walked with Jesus most of their life and they're undone, undone by the goodness of God. Songs like Jesus Love Me resound in their minds. And we think, that's a children's song. No, that's a song of deep gratitude and acknowledgement. I love that incredible scene in John chapter 8, right? The woman that is caught in adultery. Of course, we know in that scene that nobody talks about the guy who is complicit in this adulterous affair. That's another conversation for another time. But this woman is dragged, and according to the law, she is condemned to death. She's deserving of death. 
And of course, they drag her, what should we do with this lady to, in, in the presence of Jesus? And after writing some stuff in the ground, Jesus says this, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And John highlights that they all dropped their capital punishment instrument called the stone. And they walked away, beginning with the older ones. Interesting. Why does John include that detail? I believe he includes that detail because the older someone is, the more they recognize how far off they are apart from God's grace. They recognize what's really in their heart. You see, when we're young, we think very highly of ourselves, and as we get older, we probably have a truer or more sobered understanding of ourselves. And so Jesus, or John in this case, says, you are a child of the king who is forgiven. Who are we according to Father God? We are one who has been pardoned by everything that once separated us from the Father. Once I was lost, and now I am found. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was dead, but now I'm alive because God forgave my sin through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's imperative that we keep coming back to that point of reference. It seems elementary, and yet it is life-altering. I stand forgiven. We also see what we have received from the Father is that we can now know the Father. Verses 13 and 14, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, there's a, there's a, deep, and abiding, uh, there's a deep and abiding knowledge and, and intimacy with our Heavenly Father that grows over time. The longer we walk with Jesus, the, a deeper sense and intimacy is fostered and, and developed in our lives. And as you walk with Jesus and become more, become more of a man or a woman of faith, you see that there's a, a settledness and a trust and a resolve and a peace about someone who has walked with Jesus and spent time with the Father. They're not easily agitated by the circumstances that surround them or, or, or the, the events that are taking place in our world because they know the Father. They turn off the news and they turn on the Spirit and they listen to what the Father is up to. And because they know the Father, they know and trust that the Father will provide all their needs because he is in control of everything. Now, I think there's an important detail or important truth that is kind of embedded in our, in our text here. It's not just that you know the Father, but it's important that we get this. God wants you to know him and to relate to him as Father. God wants you to know him and to relate to him as father. In fact, probably the most profound theological truth that Jesus ushered in by his first coming was that we can now relate to God as father. It's why he prayed in Matthew chapter 6, 
our, you know, the disciples say, teach us how to pray. The irony is they already knew how to pray. They grew up in Judaism. They knew the prayers. They probably had a lot of prayers that they knew. And then Jesus launches out and says, our Father. Whoa, wait, our Father? And what is Jesus implying there? But the fact that God is knowable, that he is personable. You see, in first century Judaism and probably most cultures in the world at that time as well as today, what people need most is not an apologetic defense that God exists. Most of the world believes in a higher power of some kind. Most of the world believes in a God or God, something outside of themselves, something more powerful than themselves. Almost everyone believes in a higher power. But what people don't understand or have struggled to get is that God, this higher power, is personal, that He is relatable, that He is approachable like the perfect loving daddy. And yet if we don't relate to God as daddy, the perfect father who desires the best for us, then it is likely that we cannot really understand the Christian life at all. J.I. Packer says it better than me. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that, everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God the Father. What did Jesus usher in for us? He made God as Father, relatable and personable. He kind of bridged the gap, this distance sometimes that we have with God. And he says, now God wants you just to jump on his lap and tell him everything and ask repeatedly till he answers, knowing that he won't get annoyed by you, even though we get annoyed when our kids do that to us. But perfect Father God, he's just like, no, I want you to come to me. I want you to see me. I want you to relate to me in this way. It's paradigm profound. It's paradigm shifting. It blows people's minds. Judaism struggled to adopt this understanding of God in this way. We struggle, perhaps, to relate to God in this way. Who are we in Christ? We are sons and daughters who have been forgiven of all our sin. We are sons and daughters who have inherited a heavenly father, an eternal father, who knows more about us than we know about ourselves, who desires the best for us and knows the best for us than we know for ourselves. And he says, come, come. Oh, but God, look, you, you don't know. Actually, I do know. I know everything about you. I know what's in your heart. And I love you. I got to keep going. 
There's a third thing that John mentions in regards to our identity, and that is that we are victors over our sin. I am writing to you, John says in verse 13, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. You know, there's a certain reality that exists in our life, whether we like it or not. I know sometimes we struggle and I even ask the big why questions, but it's a, it's a reality nonetheless. And that is this, we constantly struggle with temptation and sin. This side of eternity, we are, our lives are marked by the constant battle against temptation and ultimately the, the temptation that leads to sin. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, right, Paul says in Ephesians 6, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are in a very real battle, right? Even this morning, you probably were reminded of that battle. Perhaps this morning, you came in going, whew, man, I hope parents got something good for me because... Yikes. Or maybe I should just stay home and try again next week. So, live streamers, just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, we, we do. We love you and we miss you. But let me just say this coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus doesn't mean that all of a sudden your problems go away, your struggles go away. That's, that's a lie from the pit of hell. No, coming to Jesus and being forgiven of your sin just means that Jesus is with you in your struggle against sin. And even says you can be more than conquerors, not by your strength, not by your power, not by your ability, but by His. So He says, remain in my love so that you can bear fruit. Remain in me so that you become victors over sin. The fact is our strength and our ability to overcome the time-tested tactics of the enemy is really in a twofold way. He says we need to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which we kind of already talked about. Let me just say it again. And we need to, to, we, we need to fight this demonic battle that we are engaged in by abiding in the Word of God. The fact is, Satan is also known as the accuser, right? He, has many, he goes by many names, the father of lies. He's the accuser. He seeks to discourage you and make you doubt God's love for you because you have your sin, what do you do when your head, when your heart is just full of doubt? What do you do when you're like, man, am I even a believer? My life is, I'm the worst Christian. I have this standard up here, and yet, if I'm honest with myself, I barely live down here. God must be so sick of me. He must be so irritated with me. He must be so done with me. But is that true? What does Jesus say? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am for you. Your love is not conditioned on your performance. Your love is conditioned on mine. And so we confront these, the accuser when he makes us doubt God's love for us 
And we run back to the cross as we sing. That's the power of the cross because at the cross, Jesus yelled this cry of victory that says, it's finished. You know what he meant by that? He meant it's finished. That's what he meant by that. He meant it's done. The darkness is, is, is going away. John already talked about that early in his letter. The darkness is passing away. The, the light is already shining. It's done. Don't go back. That's what the enemy wants to do, discourage you with lies. But God says, no, this is what's true of you. You are forgiven. I'm your father. You can be more than conquerors. You can be a victor over sin. So when the accuser has no accusation that he can bring against us because Christ has conquered and overcome, I think the only appropriate response is hallelujah. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the fact is, some of us have walked in here this morning that have been or are currently weighed down by sin. And you feel shame because of the lackluster ability to do the right thing. You doubt that God could ever continue to love you because of your your poor religious performance. Can I just say to you, based on the eternal word of God and and the authority of Jesus Christ in your life, it is finished. It's done. Don't walk in slavery any longer because it's not actually true of you. It's remember. We need to understand and see ourselves as God sees us, not as we see ourselves. I don't always look like, look, love what I look like in the mirror. But God says, but you are my child, and I love you. The accuser has nothing to bring against you because your life is now hidden in Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your life. He is your advocate that reconciles you to God. Hallelujah. So live in shame no longer. And if you are aware of your sin, confess. Because as we've already discussed, God is eager to forgive. He wants to forgive. He loves to forgive. He wants you to be free. John also mentions one other thing and very quickly. He says, we are also strong, not because, we only, because we've primarily first come to the cross and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but we are strong against the deceptive attacks because the word of God abides in us. Remember how Jesus resisted the temptation when he, before he started his ministry, right? He didn't resist temptation because he's the son of God. And he's deity, though he is that. He resisted temptation with the same power that is available to you and to me by the Spirit of Christ that indwelt him. The Holy Spirit that he rested upon, relied upon, that empowered his ministry is the same Spirit that indwells us. And so, we can say, though it may not be our daily uh, reality, we can say, I can be a victor over my sin because of what Christ has accomplished and because I remain in his love by remaining in his word, abiding in his word, 
letting the word of God, the scriptures abide in us. Jesus depended upon that. He resisted temptation and the lies with scripture, and it's no different for you and for me. So I asked this question earlier in the message, who are you? Who are you as God says you are? You are a child of the king who is forgiven. Forgiven through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that makes you a saint, a child of God, a person eternally agape by your heavenly father. And as a child of the Father, we are indwelt with His his eternal Spirit, that same Spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead, that same Spirit that Scripture says is greater than the one, the Father of lies that is in this world. That's who you are. That's who God says you are. And rest in that identity. John moves on from a message of identity to really a message of warning or exhortation. I realize the time is slipping away, so I will be concise. Really, John is going from this idea of like, this is who you are, good job, be, it, be encouraged, but watch out, be forewarned. Be in the world, but not of the world, Right? And so what we see is that we also need to recognize what the world offers, but ultimately cannot give. Do not love the world or the things of the world, John says in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For the way of clarification, when John refers to world, he's not talking about the world that God loves in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he's not saying do not love the world that God loves. That's not what John is saying. He's talking about when when John refers to world, he's talking about the values and principles and desires that are contrary to God's character and moral law. It's, It's the values and the pursuits and the behaviors that are opposed to God. It's, 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 a, it's a mindset or a, a love that rejects God's rule in order to replace it with our own rule because we want to be in control. So what does the world promote that is opposed to God? Well, there's three, three descriptions that John gives for us here. First of all, he says, the desires, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world for all that is of the world is not from the Father. And what is that? The desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh or the lusts of the flesh, depending on which translation you're reading from, they are, they, these are desires or lusts or affections that appeal to our appetites. Yes, it can include sexual immorality, but it includes all kinds of other things like, like gluttony and, and overindulgence and luxury and, and, and selfishness and possessions or whatever. I like what William Barclay actually says. He says, the desires of the flesh is to live a life dominated by the senses, This makes me feel good, so therefore I pursue it. This seems to bring me happiness, so therefore I pursue it. 
when in fact, perhaps what I think brings me happiness or makes me feel good is actually dangerous and it leads me away from God. There's also the desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes that appeals to our affections. It's a a desire that wants what it sees or gets what it sees. It's a temptation to covet or to, to, to pursue things in a greedy way that is opposed to God. But there's another, there's a third principle or, you know, again, we're trying to talk about like the, the holy trinity of demonic attack here, right? It's like there's another attack that Satan uses, and that is the pride of life or the pride of possessions. This is the appeal to our ambitions. It, the, the pride of life or the pride of possessions is all about self-glorification and self-dependence and self-confidence. You get the theme here, right? Self, self, self. I'm on the throne of my life. It's the person that wants to secure their own life by their own means. They idolize career and stuff and achievements and social standing. The the people that pursue power and prestige and position. It's why the Tower of Babel fell ultimately. It wasn't because they had the, the, the engineering ability to make a tall tower. That's not what Jesus was against. God was actually saying, no, no, no. It's the heart that is behind the building of this tower that I'm against. Because they all of a sudden think, we can be in control of our lives. What need do we have for God? The irony is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, Satan has been using this tactic since the very beginning of time. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for the food, for food, the desire of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes, the desire of the eyes. And that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. From the very beginning of time, Satan has been employing these tactics to take us out. And guess what? 100% of the human race has fallen victim to these tactics. Every single one of us has fallen victim to Satan's ways of discouraging us or blinding us or taking us or distracting us, making us impotent in our walk of faith. But there is one who is tempted in every way but without sin. You see, regarding the pride of birth and maybe the the pride of rank, we see that Jesus was part of a poor poor family, the son of a carpenter. Regarding pride of possessions, Jesus was the son of man who had no place to lay his head. Regarding pride of affluence, everybody thought, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Regarding pride of people or people pleasing, Jesus was a a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Regarding the pride of intellect, Jesus even acknowledges everything I give you is only because I received it from my Father first. Regarding the pride of self-will, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus was tempted in every way, 
and yet he did not sin. And that is why he is our advocate. And that is why he's our savior. Because we all fall short. But when our life is hidden in the one who has not, then we stand innocent, clean, pure, holy, acceptable to God. There's a story, not really a story, but a person um, described, not well known, but described in Colossians chapter 4 where Paul praises a, a number of people and even names a name, this, name, this person named Damas. Damas is praised for his faithfulness along with Luke, and he's listed among all, a group of other people for his service to Christ. Again, recognized as a servant of God, right? But then we read in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's last letter before he is martyred, He says, Damas has deserted me because he fell in love with this present world. I wonder, do do you have an unhealthy love for the things of this world? Is your love for the things of this world eclipsing your love for Jesus? Is your love for things in this world inhibiting you from receiving the Father's agape for you? Damas is an unfortunate example of someone who started well but did not end well. 